we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, I hate being deceived, and I really hate con artists, and I get really angry if somebody misleads or deceives me when I should have known better, I should have been able to work it out. For 70 years, we've been told a story about the United States and its activities around the world. The story was that they won the war, they helped the countries they defeated. Along the way, after the war, they defeated the the evil communists and they encouraged the world to pursue freedom and democracy. That their initiative and drive created new industries and they deserved their success. For most of those 70 years, we were subjected to anti-Soviet propaganda as if they were devils who seeded evil communism around the world. And with the demise of the Soviet Union, the focus has now shifted to China. China is not perfect and is indeed deeply flawed, and I certainly do not want to live under a Chinese rule. But it is a mistake to say that the Chinese are the bad guys, the Americans are the good guys, and we should therefore support and follow the Americans. The truth is that they are both bad guys and we should follow our own path. Many people look at the USA and see it as pursuing the principles of truth, justice, freedom and equality. But the opposite is true. And the proof of this is in America's foreign policy over the last 70 years. Today, many people speculate that if unchecked, China could flex its power and control and subjugate smaller countries, that it could force its will and communist agenda on less powerful countries, that if necessary it would kill, jail and terrorise vast populations to achieve its aims. Dear listener, the terrible truth is that for 70 years the USA has been conducting the same sort of terrorism campaign that we fear the Chinese will start. Most people are unaware of just how badly America has behaved. I've recently just completed reading a book called The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. And in recent, you know, over the last few years, I've read some interesting books. I think some of the most influential, um, one of them would have been The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein and The Divide by Jason Hickel. And I write, I I rate this book, The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, right up there with those uh, top handfuls of books that's, that's extremely important. It's such an important story to tell. And I, I highly recommend that you go out and buy it. What I'm going to do in this podcast is, is basically, um, Look at what he said in the book and relay a lot of that to you and and try and paint a picture of, of exactly what the USA has been up to over the last 70 years 
so that hopefully none of you listening to this podcast will ever again suggest that America stands for the principles of truth, justice, freedom, and equality. So, look, it will necessarily be an account of of the bad things that the USA has done. And in the context of comparing the USA and China, for example, in this podcast, I'm not about to list all the bad things China's done. This is a bit of a history lesson over what the USA has been up to um, as part of its foreign policy for the last 70 years. And we'll go into some detail of some of the stuff that we've really brushed over in this podcast in the last five years. So please, with this book that I'm going to be um, uh, taking a lot from, The Jakarta the Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, uh, please read it, read it twice. Many of you join this podcast because you reject the nonsense of religious dogma and you pride yourself on being rational enough to spot snake oil salesmen in clerical clothes. I'm asking you to overcome 70 years of pro-US indoctrination just as you overcame 2,000 years of religious indoctrination. So, uh, and again, to emphasise, I'm not saying you should be pro-China. I'm saying that powerful manipulators are painting a picture of China and you need to constantly assess what is likely to be true and what is likely to be false. And even for things likely to be true, you need to assess what is fair criticism and what is a beat up over nothing. And when you find real and terrible Chinese behaviour, don't assume that the, the, the American response is the answer. The truth is that the Americans have probably already done something just as bad. The answer doesn't have to be America. So let's start. Um, In this book, um, the author, Vincent, starts basically post-World War II and the world's divided. We've got a new global order. Europe's being weakened badly by the war and the planet is broken into pieces. We've got a lot of former colonial powers that have been broken badly. So they've got territories which they used to control that were either taken over by the Japanese and they want to regain control, or in the case of the Japanese, they controlled territory and that's now taken off them. There's a lot of territory in the world that was previously controlled by colonial powers that suddenly the people have got a sniff of freedom. So... Uh, in terms of the world, we've got the first world, which is the advanced Western countries. We've got the second world, which is basically uh, the Soviet Union and the and the Eastern Bloc. And we've got the third world, which is um, um, people who, with very few ex- exceptions, um, had lived under the control of European colonialism. So in 1950, that was about two-thirds of the world's population. So... Um, post-World War II, President Truman um, hated communism and he had a problem in Greece. There was a civil war as Greek communists who had fought against the Nazis were going well and Truman wanted to interfere. So he came up with what became known as the Truman Doctrine. And the Truman Doctrine was, uh, as he was quoted in telling Congress, quote, It must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. Uh, 
So that's basically uh, the US is entitled to get involved in other countries. So that was his doctrine, which was used uh, as a reason for um, uh, taking action against the communists in the Greek Civil War. And allied to that at the same time as this sort of uh, anti-communist President Truman, we had, um, well, he had to get domestic support because, I mean, you've got a country that's already been to war and is probably sick of war and wants all its boys home and doesn't want to necessarily get involved in any more. And it was, a, it was sort of the advice to Truman was that in order to get the American people on side, you need to scare the hell out of the American people about communism. If you scare them enough, then they'll come on board with whatever you want to do to bring it down. So this helped kick off McCarthyism, which was driven by the president and the FBI and named after Senator Joseph McCarthy, uh, who, with the House Un-American Activities Commission, led a wild search for communists in the US government. So the Truman Doctrine, we're allowed to interfere in other countries. McCarthyism, let's look for communists wherever we can find them. And all in that uh, mix, it became accepted fact that uh, the Soviets were pushing for revolution worldwide, that wherever communists were present, they were plotting to overthrow the government. And they were doing so on the order of the Soviets as part of a vast global conspiracy to destroy the West. Now, when you actually look at the history of a lot of these countries, more often than not, the Soviet leadership was telling communist groups in various countries to take it easy, don't don't create a revolution, try and work with the governments, try and get a foothold as part of the, the government in terms of coalitions and not to actually um, uh, create revolutions. And, in fact, they even told Mao that to, to back off and don't – to just work with um, the government of the day. And, in the end, um, Mao took a different approach, but – you know, first of all, the notion that the Soviets were saying to all of their little communist friends around the world, yep, boys, you know, create havoc and a revolution whenever you get the chance, that is just not the case. But that was the theory. Now, this book is entitled The Jakarta Method, and so it's going to spend a lot of time looking at Indonesia. And I'm Australian, dear listener, and I have to confess that until recent times, I knew nothing about Indonesian history. and I'm finding it fascinating and I'm embarrassed at how little I previously knew about a country that's our, nor- our northern neighbour and obviously so important. So we're going to learn a bit about uh, Indonesia in this one. So early Indonesia. Indonesia had been controlled by the Dutch for centuries and in World War II, Japan took control. After the war, the Dutch thought they could just move back in. So there was a war of independence, as you would expect, where the locals said, you know, no way. And a guy called Sukarno, um, he took power. And in doing so, he, he sort of clashed with the communists um, and he eventually expelled the Dutch in 1949. So he was a fairly independent-minded guy, to say the least, and he didn't want formal alliances with Russia or America but he had enough credit points from fighting the communists in order to gain power that the Americans were okay with him. 
So that's early Indonesia. We're going to move in a timeline here, dear listener. We're going to scoot around the world, um, working our way through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and, and then ducking back and forward amongst these countries. So that sets up early Indonesia, early Indonesia for you. Let's move ahead now to 1953 and Iran. And we've got a new president at that point, Eisenhower, who had appointed the Dulles brothers into significant positions, um, appointed John Foster Dulles to serve as Secretary of State and tapped his younger brother, Alan Dulles, to lead the CIA. And these guys are obsessed with um, finding and fighting communism wherever they saw it. And basically, in Iran, I mean, look at Iran today and and what we've got with this um, Islamic theocracy that's in control. It all comes back to what happened in 1953 with US intervention. Um, Basically, a duly elected Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, had control of the country. And at that time, the British um, oil companies had outrageous deals with um, keeping all of the money that they were making from oil that they were extracting from Iran. And these were deals that were done with with corrupt dictators from previous eras. So this happens a lot in the developing third world, dear listener, where um, you'll find that you've got oil-rich countries or countries that are rich in other natural resources that large multinational corporations cut deals with corrupt dictators, then duly elected progressive reformers come in, overthrow the dictators, and then talk to these multinationals and say, hey, that deal is not fair. We can't continue on that basis. We can come to a more reasonable deal, but you can't have that deal because it is just ridiculous. Now, dear listener, in in law, if you make deals um, with people who are incapable because they don't have authority... Um, those deals get get quashed. It's a similar situation here. You, these companies, I've got no sympathy for them. They made deals that were grossly unfair to the countries that they were dealing with, and they were dealing. They got them because of corrupt practices by um, dictators at the time. So, have no sympathy for these companies at all. They did all this work and developed all this stuff, and now it's taken off them. Anybody who enters into um, deals like this has to do so on the understanding that eventually when the people gain control of the country, they're going to can it and want something different. So that's part of what happens when you as a, as a, as a corrupt international company deal with a corrupt dictator and make a corrupt deal. You have to expect that at some point it's going to get overthrown. Anyway, back to Iran. So Mossadegh, he, he basically wanted to cut a deal with with the British oil um, uh, company, and they just wouldn't come into it. They weren't prepared to budge at all. And initially the US was not interested in helping the British and basically were like, come on, guys, you know, this is not this is not uh, a fair deal. You can't really expect to hang on to that. But 
they were convinced that, um, in fact, uh, it was something that they wanted to get involved with. And now this is not conjecture. This is not uh, fanciful stuff in some sort of um, smoky conspiracy that nobody really can be sure about. Like this is established fact that the US, uh, through its CIA agent Kermit Roosevelt, um, took uh, enormous um, steps to create havoc in Iran and he had a million dollars to spend. Um, he and the CIA bribed every politician that they could. Um, they looked for a general willing to take over uh, and install the Shah as a dictator. The CIA paid street thugs, strong men and circus performers to riot in the streets. They created pamphlets and posters proclaiming that Mossadegh was a communist and an enemy of Islam. So... Um, and they hired gangsters to pretend to be um, um, members of Mossadegh's party and attack a mosque. So they basically went around with a massive propaganda campaign against Mossadegh and, um, and in the end successfully overthrew him. What do we end up with? The Shah of Iraq, the Shah, who they installed, who obviously became unpalatable to the people. We ended up with the Ayatollah coming in and we ended up with the Iran of today. Like it's all a direct result of the US interference in that country. And this isn't fanciful stuff. We know it's the case. So that gave the US some a sense of success because um, they could see that they could change um, the government of a country with with a few street thugs and a propaganda campaign and enough money uh, and tap the right people on the shoulder, you could change a government. So that was Iran in 1953. Let's cross the world to Guatemala. So prior to World War II, there was a pro-Nazi dictator who corruptly favoured the landed aristocracy and foreign corporations. Um, in 1944, there was a revolution and a more progressive government managed to get a toehold, managed to get power. So that was 1944. I suspect at the time that the US government was too busy looking at the, um, uh, dealing with the Second World War to sort of pay much attention to what was happening in Guatemala. So anyway, a rather progressive group gets into power in 1944. In 1952... Uh, the government, the democratically elected one, um, wanted to enter a, a process of land reform. And what they wanted to do was buy back unused land and pay official value. So they were basically saying to groups like the United Fruit Company, you've got land out of there not, you're not using. Uh, in the books, you've got it listed at this value. Um, we're going to pay you for that land because we want our peasants and people to be able to use it. Now, the United Fruit Company wasn't happy because it's it had, in its books it had undervalued its land in order to avoid tax. So in uh, the government at the time, Guatemala, the communists were part of the government coalition, but the government was clearly trying to take uh, Guatemala to forward as a modern capitalist state. So it, it had... It had communists as part of its coalition, but um, 
it, it was definitely on the track of being a modern communist, a modern capitalist state. So, but United Fruit Company complained of a communist threat, um, which was completely unwarranted. In this case, with the United Fruit Company, um, that particular company had deep ties with Washington. So this is from Wikipedia. The relationship between the Eisenhower administration and the United Fruit Company demonstrated the influence of corporate interest in US foreign policy. So um, John Foster Dulles, I mentioned before, um, he was a member of a law firm which had represented United Fruit. His brother Alan, director of the CIA, was a board member of United Fruit. United Fruit Company is the only company known to have a CIA cryptonym. The brother of the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs uh, had once been president of United Fruit and its uh, principal lobbyist was married to Eisenhower's personal secretary. So many people who directly influenced US policy towards Guatemala um, had direct ties to the United Fruit Company. So... The fruit company said they're communist and they had all these um, people in Washington who were deeply connected with them. And uh, that was enough. So what did America do? Well, um, they basically made three coup attempts and it was the third one that worked. So um, uh, what they really wanted to do was create a pretext for intervention, so the um, they really wanted some sort of excuse to come in and and interfere in the country. So the uh, the president at the time uncovered the plans for the third coup attempt and even published them in the Guatemalan press. But the CIA was so confident um, that they organised a tiny rebel force around General Carlos Castillo Amas. And basically, the US dropped bombs on the capital of Guatemala. Now, these were um, bombs nicknamed sulfatos or sulfate laxatives because their job was not to do damage, but to make the president and everyone around him so afraid they would fill their pants. So this is what the US got to of actually dropping bombs on the Guatemalan capital and the president realised that the US was determined to to oust him. So he contemplated giving in. And at the time, there was a 25-year-old Argentinian doctor living in Guatemala City at the time named uh, Che Guevara, who volunteered to go to the front and help uh, fight the rebels. But instead, the president resigned and handed over power to a Colonel Diaz, who was head of the armed forces. And Diaz had said to the president that he had an understanding from the North Americans that if he took power, then it would all be okay. Um, So he took power. And um, what happened was a few days after this general took power, CIA Station Chief John Doherty um, sat him down and said, let me explain something to you. You made a big mistake when you took over the government. You're not convenient for the requirements of American foreign policy. And this general was shocked and he asked to hear from the ambassador himself. And the ambassador said, um, 
no, you're not the man. Um, and in fact, um, showed Diaz a long list of Guatemalans who would need to be shot immediately. And Diaz, the general, said, why? And the ambassador said, um, because they're communists. This is the same ambassador who had been uh, transferred from Greece. So uh, Castillo Armas, uh, the US favourite, took over and uh, rounded up and executed between 3,000 and 5,000 supporters of the president, of the, of the old president. So we've got the US bombing another country installing its own dictator and giving a list of names to kill. Can you imagine if... This is the sort of thing people think China would do today. That's Guatemala. It gets worse for Guatemala, but we'll go on. Che Guevara learned a lesson from that. He learned uh, you need to fight dirty and fight hard. He headed off to Mexico. Let's travel back to Indonesia. Sukarno was president, but he had an unwieldy parliamentary system with several coalition partners, including the communists. And in the 1950s, the Communist Party, the PKI, was improving all the time, largely because they were the least corrupt and the most helpful to the people. So um, at that time... Sukarno, as I said, was quite independent-minded and he didn't mind giving a bit of lip to the US and the US decided he'd been a bit too uppity for them. So they decided to hold his... The CIA decided to hold Sukarno's feet to the fire. So in 1957, the US started arming rebels to create problems in Indonesia. Let me just turn to the right part of the book here. So um, basically um, bombs started being dropped by planes on Indonesian military and commercial shipping village um, vessels. Um, on the 15th of May, explosions hit a market, killing both morning shoppers and uh, Christians attending church. So... Actual bombs being dropped by real planes and the US was denying that it had anything to do with it. It just said they were rebels who were doing it. It's not us. And in fact, the New York Times, at the, because the, the, the Indonesians were saying, the US, you've got to stop doing this. What are you doing? And the US was saying, it's not us. And the New York Times um, lambasted Sukarno and his government in a May 9 editorial for doubting the assurances that the US would never intervene in the conflict. Well, uh, nine days later, the Indonesians managed to shoot down one of the planes, captured the pilot. His name was Alan Lawrence Pope, a CIA agent. The, the pilots were taking off from Singapore and uh, obviously CIA agents dropping bombs and helping the rebels against Sukarno. So uh, at that point, the, um, the US decided 
well, we've been caught in such an obvious fashion, we'll pull back from this, this obvious method that we're using here with Sukarno. And what they realised was that the military was the way to go in a situation like Indonesia. So they aimed to improve their their uh, relationship with the in- Indonesian military. So Sukarno was in a juggling act. He, was, he had... Uh, communists, the, the PKI, who were popular with the people. He was having to juggle their demands. He had the Indonesian Armed Forces, who were largely uh, sort of anti-communist. And remembering that all of them, though, had been in the beginning uh, very pro-nationalist. Their main deal at the beginning was to get rid of the Dutch. So they were all together at that point in getting rid of the Dutch, and then they had their differences. So the US decided to use... Um, the Indonesian Armed Forces to construct an anti-communist front. Now, what they did was they started inviting Indonesian soldiers for training in the USA, mostly at Fort Leavenworth. So in 1954, there were 12 soldiers training in the USA from Indonesia. 1958, at the time of this sort of bombing that I mentioned when the plane was shot down, there was zero. A year later, there were 41 Indonesian soldiers training in the USA. And by nine and three years after that, there was at least a thousand Indonesian soldiers training in the USA. And they're obviously being trained in, um, in, in warfare, but they're also being indoctrinated into Americanisms and, and in particular, anti-communist sentiment. So uh, also at that time, Sukarno had to give the military extra powers to deal with those rebels. Um, and those, the military, as a result of that, got involved in all sorts of other things, uh, fishing, farming, uh, and construction. So the, the military then got extra power, and they had all sorts of businesses that they were conducting, and that becomes important later on in East Timor, if we get to that in the story. I'm not sure if we will. But basically the military were very reluctant to give away East Timor because they were making money out of East Timor. So um, that's the setup in Indonesia where the Americans uh, dropped some bombs, a CIA agent caught red-handed interfering, and... Um, the US deciding, hmm, let's get in cosy with the um, the armed forces and we'll spend a few years Americanising them. That's bubbling away in the background. Meanwhile, 1960, the Congo. The Congo's first elected prime minister was Patrice Lumumba, who was immediately faced with a breakdown of order there was an army revolt while secessionist groups from the mineral-rich province of Katanga made their move and Belgian paratroopers, that's the colonial power, returned supposedly to restore security. So he wins an election, duly elected, and immediately um, uh, chaos is uh, occurring. Lumumba made a fateful misstep he turned to the Soviet Union for help. This set off panic in London and Washington, who'd feared the Soviets would get a foothold in Africa, much as they had done in Cuba. In the White House, President Eisenhower held a National Security Council meeting in the summer of 1960 
in which at one point he turned to his CIA director and used the word eliminated in terms of what he wanted done with Lumumba. The CIA got to work, came up with a series of plans ranging from snipers to poisoned toothpaste to get rid of the leader. They weren't carried out because the CIA man on the ground, Larry Devlin, said he was reluctant to see them through. In the end, Lumumba was killed by troops loyal to Joseph Mobutu, who was the CIA-backed army chief. Um, This all happened three days before JFK was sworn in. So basically, uh, Lumumba was killed before the CIA could get to him by an army chief uh, backed by the CIA. Um, So then Mobutu took over the second largest country in sub-Saharan Africa, staged public executions of his rivals, built a dictatorship and became one of America's closest allies in Africa. These are the sorts of things that people are worried that China will do. America has already done it. We know they did it. It's on the record as far back as 1960. Cuba, 1961. JFK actually inherited the Bay of Pigs invasion plans. The mercenaries were training in Guatemala. Che Guevara was finance minister in Cuba and he wasn't about to allow a repeat of Guatemala. So the Bay of Pigs was a disaster and the USA had... had taken such a public hit on that that they couldn't do the uh, the same thing again. So nothing as public as that. So um, ironically, uh, four days after the invasion, Sukarno from Indonesia visited Washington, but he didn't bring up the parallels with what the uh, with what had happened in terms of 1958 with the US bombing his uh, his own country. Still in 1961, Iraq. So outside of Indonesia, the largest communist party was in Iraq. The Iraqi communists contemplated overthrowing the dictator, Abd al-Karim Qasim, but the Soviets advised against it. Washington backed a successful coup by the anti-communist Ba'ath Party, which immediately crushed the communists and slaughtered untold numbers with a chief torturer being Saddam Hussein. Back across the world, still in 1961-1962, Brazil. Most South American countries um, had to throw the Spanish out, but Brazil was Portuguese. And the Portuguese royal family had fled to Brazil in 1807 when Napoleon invaded. So... There had been a long-serving left-wing vice president called Django who became president in 1961. And he, prom- he promoted such outrageous things such as universal voting, increased literacy and land reforms. And he visited uh, President Kennedy in 1962 and shortly afterwards Kennedy met the US ambassador to Brazil and agreed to spend million- millions of dollars on anti-Django plans for the election and to prepare the ground for a military coup if necessary, because they saw him as a communist. So money poured in um, more subtly than in Guatemala and Iran. That's burbling away there. 1963, Vietnam. Um, 
Kennedy ordered the ambassador in South Vietnam to facilitate the removal of President Diem. The CIA passed the word down to a local general. So Diem was kidnapped and killed, whereas JFK just wanted him removed, not killed. Um, A few weeks later, JFK himself was killed. Back to Brazil. So there was a coup led by General Humberto Castelo Branco, who had trained, guess where? Fort Leavenworth, USA. So the coup was in 1964. Django fled to Uruguay. As the coup began, the US State Department began an operation dubbed Brother Sam and made tankers, ammunition and aircraft carriers available to the conspirators. These were not needed. I mean, Django was a duly elected leader and the US doesn't give a shit. Brazil was different in that the US interference was less obvious than previous ventures and it was made easier because Brazil had a unique sort of anti-communist culture as a result of its history back in the 1930s. As a result of that, Brazil would not hold another democratic election for 25 years. Back to Indonesia, 1963. Remember, we've got the... uh, Army has had at least a thousand soldiers a year being trained by the US. So, 1963, nearly a third of the country's registered voters were PKI affiliates, communist affiliates. The PKI, the PKI had been peaceful. They had no arms, and they had no votes because at that stage there weren't any elections. Sukarno was was running what he called a guided democracy, meaning a dictatorship. The military was anti-communist and allied to the Muslims and was increasingly powerful. So Sukarno uh, took on the United Kingdom over Malaya. So the UK had created Malaysia but had excluded Singapore. The reason they did that was they didn't want uh, too many Chinese communist sympathisers in Malaysia, so they segregated Singapore out. So the US supported the UK um, in return for the UK supporting the US in Vietnam. So, so much for freedom. So Carno became um, more publicly anti-American and uh, American aid dried up, except when it came to money for the Indonesian army, which the Americans, that was flowing very freely. So at that time, off Vietnam... The US destroyer Maddox was in Vietnamese waters. Uh, It violated the international 12-mile limit and opened fire on three Vietnamese patrol boats and two days later fired at their own shadows, creating the excuse for uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson to start a full war in Vietnam. Imagine if we said all that and had used China instead of USA. Oh, the evil Chinese. But we don't seem to say it about the USA. So three days later, Sukarno established relations with Ho Chi Minh government. <laughs> he just so annoyed with the Americans and he was just prickly. So he's, um, he's saying, stuff you, um, you, can, you can start a war, but I'm going to be baits with Ho Chi Minh. And actually most Indonesians agreed with Sukarno because they cherished the 
the idea of independence from a colonial power. They recognised that Vietnam, uh, having got rid of the, um, well, originally occupied by the French, um, uh, were, were fighting for their freedom. And, and the Indonesians had done exactly the same thing uh, after the sec- directly after the Second World War. So they were quite sympathetic to what Vietnam was trying to do. At the time, uh, the USA had a really good guy ambassador called Jones, who, who just by all accounts seemed to have been a decent guy who understood Indonesia and who understood that the communists were actually just socialists who were progressive and trying to do the right thing within the system. So they got rid of good guy uh, Jones uh, because they were ready to take action. And um, what they really wanted, uh, the CIA and MI6, wanted to goad the Indonesian communists into a premature coup that could provoke an army response. Then we get to an event, uh, the 30th of September 1965 in Indonesia. And dear listener, if you're an Australian and you don't know about this event, I didn't know about it until very recent times. Um, it's embarrassing that we don't know this, this sort of story. And this particular incident that I'm going to describe, um, I mean, we're 55 years later and we still can't be sure exactly what happened. I'm going to give you the version from um, Vincent um, Bevan's book, The Jakarta Method. Uh, there are other versions out there. Make up your own minds. So uh, 30th of September. 1965, Indonesia. Six generals were captured and killed by a rebel group in the army. Uh, They tried to get seven, but they got six. Um, It was uh, most likely it was an internal army movement that the the PKI communists uh, did not help organise. It's it seems very plausible that Suharto, not Sukarno, so a new character, Suharto, uh, who was a general, a, a minor, a lower-ranking general in the, in the uh, Indonesian military, it seems plausible that Suharto planned or infiltrated the group to engineer his rise to power because everything Suharto did in October suggests he was executing an anti-communist counterattack plan that had been developed in advance, not simply reacting to a crisis. So these rebels tried to capture the top seven generals. They got six of them. The rebels were quickly captured and dealt with. <clears throat> the generals they had killed and thrown down a well. Even though the remaining seventh general was higher ranking, uh, Suharto just took control in the way that a man who knew what was happening um, in advance would take control. And he blamed the communists straight up and said, it's the PKI. And he made up fanciful stories about what had been done and what the, what the PKI communists were planning to do. And he demonised the PKI, described how the uh, generals had been tortured and how the genitals had been dealt with and, and described really gruesome things and, and said, this is what these communists are going to do to the rest of us. And um, and he beat up a propaganda about communist involvement in that uh, uprising. 
so much so that today Indonesians celebrate the anniversary as a kind of an anti-communist national ritual. So, you know, if there were any communists involved in that plot, it would only have been the top handful at most of uh, the communist leadership and certainly not a million Indonesians. Anyway, very early on, the US backed Suharto, this incoming general, over Sukarno. And with the uh, the PKI communists were painted as evil in Sukarno, um, basically they ran a propaganda campaign through the uh, the media, painting the communists as evil. And Sukarno, the old guy, had to support the military with its anti-PKI rhetoric because emotions had been stirred up so much that if if Sukarno had said, "Oh, come on, it's not really the case," no, nobody would have swallowed it. And He's having to do with a military coup here, essentially. He's trying to cling on to power. So he goes, oh, yeah, okay, uh, PKI, high communists, okay. Anyway, the army then proceeds to torture, rape and slaughter every communist it could find. Mass killings, rivers starting to bank up and be blocked by the number of bodies dead in the rivers. People were arrested and just disappeared and no one was sure what was happening. This is one of the things, like people would be rounded up and taken away and their, their families wouldn't know what had happened. They weren't sure if they were alive or dead or what had happened to them. There was this, there was a sense of just not knowing. So uh, that was a big part of it. Um, also, the Muslim youth wing helped out. Now, US officials made it clear um, that Sukarno had to be removed and the attacks on US investments had to be halted. In Bali, 5% of the population was executed over a few months for affiliation with a political party that had been entirely legal and mainstream just weeks earlier. Like the Communist Party, the PKI, was a legitimate, just a political party in Indonesia but if you had any links to that party after this event, you were rounded up and disappeared. You could have been just an ordinary union organiser on a shop floor hoping to get better conditions here and there or organising sing-alongs at a Saturday night function. Like Just the most innocent of people were, were caught up as, as supposedly part of the plotters of killing these six generals. Anyway... Sukarno was forced to resign and at that time the Western press was basically repeating the narrative peddled by the new government and just saying it was inexplicable tribal violence that had broken out in an irrational outburst. Dear listener, between 500,000 and a million people were slaughtered and a million more were put into concentration camps. And you're going, well, okay, the US trained these military and might have made them anti-communist, but, yeah, they didn't actually do it themselves, did they? Well, US assistance, this now is from uh, Wikipedia. Um, Bradley Simpson, director of the Indonesia 
uh, East Timor documentation project at the National Security Archive contends that declassified documents indicate that the United States provided economic, technical and military aid to the Army soon after the killing started and continued to do so long after it was clear a widespread slaughter was taking place in northern Sumatra and other places and in the expectation that US assistance would contribute to this. Further evidence for this funding has been substantiated by a cable that was sent from Ambassador Green after meeting the CIA's Hu Tova to the Assistant Secretary of State Bill Bundy, one advocating for payments to be sent to anti-communist fighter Adam Malik. Reading from the, um, from the cable. This is to confirm my earlier con- concurrence that we provide Malik with 50 million rupees. It's about $10,000 for activities of the GAP Gestapo movement. The army-inspired but the civilian-staffed group is still carrying burden of current repressive efforts. Our willingness to assist him in this matter will, I think, represent in Malik's mind our endorsement of his present role in the army's anti-PKI efforts and will promote good cooperating relations between him and the army. The chances of detection or subsequent revelation of our support in this instance are as minimal as any black flag operation can be. Other cables from Green issued to the State Department suggested that the United States played a role in developing elements of the anti-communist propaganda following the um, alleged PKI activities. Um, As Green stated in a cable from October 5th, quote, We can help shape developments to our advantage, spread the story of PKI's guilt, treachery and brutality. He went on to say that it would be a welcome goal to blacken the eye of PKI in the eyes of the people. So the US was funding civilian murderers who were carrying out army assassinations and admitted its help in this terrible propaganda campaign that painted a picture of PKI communists that then encouraged Indonesians to kill them. It gets worse. Again from Wikipedia. In May 1990, the State News Service published a study by journalist Kathy Kadani, which highlighted significant US involvement in the killings. Kadani quoted Robert Martins, who had worked for the U.S. Embassy, is saying that senior U.S. diplomats and CIA officials provided a list of approximately 5,000 names of communist operatives to the Indonesian army while it was hunting down and killing members of the Communist Party of Indonesia and alleged sympathisers. Martins told Kadani that, quote, it really was a big help to the army. They probably killed a lot of people and I probably have a lot of blood on my hands, but that's not all bad. There's a time when you have to strike hard at a decisive moment, end quote. Kadane wrote that approval for the release of names put on the list came from top US embassy officials, um, Marshall Green and Deputy Chief of Mission Jack Lidman and Political Section Chief Edward Masters. Um... There's stuff in the show notes about this. Um, essentially, there's compelling evidence that the US provided the Indonesian army with a death list to help them out. 
because in the words of the US, it was surprising how uh, ill-prepared the Indonesian army was in terms of finding the communists to kill. So um, they helped them out. Again, <laughs> this is the sort of thing that we think China might get up to, if, but it's already happened. It's It's terrible. There's more in the show notes about that. So Sahato, the incoming guy, he consolidates his rule and American companies like General Electric, American Express, Caterpillar and Goodyear all explore business opportunities. While one million Indonesians are in concentration camps comparable to what you'd find or imagine in the Soviet Union. Let's cross over to Chile, 1970. Salvador Allende won narrowly in 1970. He was a socialist and a Marxist intellectual. Henry Kissinger, National Security Advisor to Nixon, said, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. I'll read a bit more from this book, The Jakarta Method. One thing about this book is obviously goes into much more detail, but he also paints pictures from ordinary people at the time and follows their personal experiences, which um, really adds to the story and and just made me so sad and just angry at the same time at what had happened to these people. Um, Kissinger also said... Um, I want to work on this and on military relations, put in more money. On the economic side, we want to give him cold turkey. We'll be very cool and very correct, but doing these other things, which will be a real message to Allende and others, no impression should be permitted in Latin America that they can get away with this. There's no impression in Latin America that you can elect a leftist government, is what Kissinger is saying. This is from the country... Truth, justice, equality. Anyway, they apply an economic squeeze. This is the template that's currently being used, by the way, in Venezuela. Say what you like about Maduro, but this is, this is the sort of exact Chilean template being used again. So um, the US... Um, is encouraging the military in Chile. And they start working on a plan which they call, in within the military, the Jakarta Plan, to kill around 10,000 people. And in the capital of Chile, you start seeing graffiti on the walls. Jakarta is coming. So uh, there's a real sense in the country that a military takeover is is going to happen. And because they've seen it all over, they've seen it happening in these other countries. But um, the head of the military at the time was actually very sympathetic to the constitution. He was like, no, the constitution says this guy's going to be president, so he is. Well, he was killed. His replacement was also sympathetic 
to the Constitution and let Allende continue. But uh, when he resigned, he immediately hopped on a plane to Buenos Aires to get out of the country because he knew his time was up. So he left and went to Buenos Aires. Aires. A few years later, he was assassinated. So enter uh, General Pinochet, who then becomes the head of the military. We all know what happened. September 11, 1973, uh, Allende ends up barricading himself in, uh, I think it was the Parliament or or something like that, and uh, and shot himself. And Pinochet went ahead and killed around 3,000 people not as many as the 10,000 that they initially planned on. Again, uh, enormous US help offered to the military, uh, and you can just hear it in the words that we've got from um, uh, Nixon and actually that last quote I said before was from Nixon, not from Kissinger. Um, Let's move over to Cambodia. So America organised a coup to get rid of to get rid of Prince Sihanouk and installed Lon Nol. During his rule, the US bombed Cambodia indiscriminately, killing hundreds of thousands of people, mostly peasants, in a futile attempt to stop the Vietnamese communists moving through the countryside. The United States dropped three times the tonnage of bombs on Cambodia as was dropped on Japan in World War II. That included the atomic bombs. So uh, America organised a coup against Prince Sihanouk, as I said. The ousted prince threw his support behind the Khmer Rouge, who were the only ones fighting Lon Nol and the US Army. And we all know what happened after that. But did you know... Um, In January 1979, about four years after they'd started, the Khmer Rouge fell because the Vietnamese realised what was happening and they allowed the Cambodians to create their own government. But the US chose to recognise at the UN the remnants of the Khmer Rouge rather than the Vietnamese-allied government. ASEAN backed the Khmer Rouge as well. Deng Xiaoping, leader of China at the time, was furious about the Vietnamese doing this in Cambodia because the Khmer Rouge was a Chinese ally. And he threatened to invade Vietnam and told President Carter privately, um, well, he told President Carter and President Carter privately promised to help China if the Soviets threatened to help the Vietnamese. So we'll stay out of it, but if the Soviets get involved, China will help you. China invaded Vietnam in 1979, but the Vietnamese were too good. They'd been fighting hard and long, and they knew how to fight, so they kicked, they kicked the China, they thwarted the, uh, the Chinese attack. Moving on, East Timor, 1975. So... In 1975, um, there was a Portuguese dictatorship which fell and the new Portuguese government decided to withdraw from its colonies. 
This included East Timor. This is uh, East Timor, basically on the map, is at the far east of Indonesia, close to Australia. And Suharto claimed he was threatened by the East Timorese communists. And Nixon, President Nixon, gave Suharto the wink to take it, to take East Timor in an Operation Lotus, which killed 300,000 East Timorese. From 1975 to 1979, the Indonesian armed forces killed up to a third of the population, a higher proportion than Pol Pot in Cambodia. This is by Sakato, the, the US-assisted military dictator who grabbed power in Indonesia. Back to Guatemala, they've been racked by dictatorships uh, since Che Guevara left in that incident I mentioned earlier. The dictatorship supported by US Green Berets conducts a terror campaign against any lefties and subversives it can find and uses Jakarta-like tactics to disappear tens of thousands of people. Nicaragua, 1979. The Sandinistas won. Ronald Reagan promptly begins funding the Contra rebels. Basically, any time a leftish government popped up its head in Latin America, the US came down hard, found a military dictator, gave them assistance, gave them the nick and the, the wink and the nod, or gave them money, or gave them a death list, or put troops on the ground in, in the form of Green Berets, help them conduct propaganda campaigns, or scare the shit out of any leftists who dared to stand up to them. From, uh, you know, just roughly, from 78 to 83, the Guatemalan military killed more than 200,000 people. The Salvadorian Civil War took 75,000 lives. Argentina killed 20,000 to 30,000. Anti-communist extermination spread all across Latin America, always with the assistance of the United States. Historian John Coatesworth concluded that from 1960 to 1990, the number of victims of US-backed violence in Latin America vastly exceeded the number of people killed in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc over the same time. There's a, there's a quote for you when people talk about the evil communists. You say, yes, they're evil. But hey, US-backed violence in Latin America vastly exceeded the number of people killed by the Soviets in the Eastern Bloc from 1960 to 1990. Indonesia today, they're still under the belief that the communists conspired and plotted, caused a gruesome death of heroic generals. Luckily, Sahado was around to regain control quickly and help rid the country of the communist threat forever. There's a museum, which must be somewhere in Jakarta, I think, and as you walk down a bizarre series of darkened halls, a series of diorama installations take you through the history of the party, 
this is the Communist Party, demonstrating each and every time they betrayed the nation or attacked the military or plotted to destroy Indonesia, down to reproducing Suharto's propaganda narrative about the events of October 1965. There is no reference to the up to one million civilians killed as a result. At the exit, kids pose for photos in front of a big sign that says, Thank you for observing some of our dioramas about the savagery carried out by the Indonesian Communist Party. Don't let anything like this ever happen again. So the whole point of this is, as I said earlier, today many people speculate that if unchecked, China could flex its power and control and subjugate smaller countries, that it could force its will and communist agenda on less powerful countries that if necessary it would jail, kill and terrorise vast populations to achieve its aims. And the terrible truth is that for 70 years the USA has been conducting the same sort of terrorism campaign that we fear the Chinese will start. And most people are unaware of just how badly America has behaved. So, dear listener, I really highly recommend um, this book, The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, uh, goes into enormous detail, lots of footnotes and references, but also the personal stories of different individuals caught up at different points in these tragic stories. And it's a story we need to understand. And um, and we need to keep that in mind when we are faced what I see all the time at the moment of this anti-China rhetoric, fine, but the response seems to be, so we must side with the Americans. And I just hope that this podcast gives you some reasons why that might not be a good idea. Anyway, dear listener, next week, uh, episode 260, it, we will celebrate five years of having done this podcast. Hope you can join us. We'll be live streaming on a Tuesday night at 7.30. See you then. Father Anonymous here, fist, glove, congratulations on four years of entertaining and informative podcasts. Twelfth man, I fear if not for your wise counsel, your comrades would have argued in ever-decreasing circles until eventually disappearing up their own. Amen. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from 
a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.